Welcome back to Pulp Friction. It's a show about what divides us. My name is Rocky, Flan's name is Flan, Blair's name is Blurry, and we are talking about the furry fandom. The furry oh, fandom. Oh, yes, we are. You know, I, 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 seeing that phrase a lot, and I was familiar with the phrase before, but seeing it over and over, I was like, you know, I guess I am a fan. <laughs> <laughs> Like I feel I feel like I've always been like, you know, I could be a furry if someone willed me to be one. But it's like, no, I'm a fan. I'm a fan of, of furries. <laughs> fan of what they do, what they stand for. Yeah. I'm a, I believe in their belief. I'm an enthusiast. I don't know. Like I- <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'm like a enjoyer. <laughs> so you guys are furries. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, no, I'm not. What am I doing? Pointing here? a finger at me accusatorily. <laughs> I'm hiding my fursuit. <laughs> um, we're gonna get into it, and we're gonna have a lot of fun. Uh, I feel like everyone is aware that there are misconceptions about furries out there, and that it is, you know, that you know, a lot of laughs are had uh, about them. But uh, we're going to really dig deep. Uh, into the history. I have a lot of notes on the history, and I'm hoping you guys can bring more um, uh, inner community experience, I guess, and also just just insight. Because uh, because you know we're all we're all we're all fans. We're all of the fandom. Um, One could say. And let's talk about it. I'd like to start by sort of asking you guys the question, the classic question of your personal history with the furry community of course of course uh flan do you want to start or should i go i can start um okay i feel like so i grew up first and foremost uh in like video game spaces online like that was really my thing um and i think that (laughs) there's a direct lineage that i was not a part of but somewhere 2002 uh certain forums started arguing over Anime versus video games versus furries, which one sucks the most? Uh, furries lost that war, and so I don't think <laughs> particularly anyone that likes video games, at least in that time period, wanted anything to do with them. Um, and so mm-hmm. I sort of shied away from it and shied away from it for a very long time and just sort of, you know, didn't really get involved with anything. Uh, but I was always a fan of cartoons i grew up with like animaniacs and stuff i always grew up kind of drawing that stuff on my own um but it was only like 2020 where i started actually sort of identifying with it and sort of existing i'll say like around the outside of those spaces in the vicinity in the vicinity like just you know watching it from another room (laughs) uh and yeah so that's uh and now i i draw it uh I don't super get involved in like fandom stuff, <laughs> but I consider myself, you know, I consider it something that I do for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. I I've I think I've always been a furry, like f- at the bottom of my heart. Um I don't think I never I didn't like always identify with the phrase furry. I was just like a guy who drew anthropomorphic animals. Um, because I grew up on Flipnote, um, which was an online animation community, uh, for the Nintendo DS app, Flipnote. Um, and everything on there was furries. Like, your characters, like, 
because because I think because the screens were so small, it was really hard to draw humanoid characters. So a lot of people ended up making like um, Pokemon OCs and like a lot of people made OCs of the like Chow from Sonic Adventure Two, um, and just like general anthropomorphic animals. And I was a part of that um, as someone who was on that community and also like Red Warrior Cats. It was a pretty um, straight shot to make a you know cat character to represent myself. Um, and I had always been like that. I kind of, like, fought off the furry allegations as a joke for a little bit. Um, but, like, just because, like, it was funny to be like, I'm not a furry, and then immediately show my fursona in a, you know, in a Skype call. <laughs> um, but uh, it was around, like, right... So, yeah. Uh, and that continued in pretty much my entire life. It kind of followed me to DeviantArt. It followed me... Um, off of DeviantArt onto Tumblr. Um, and then I really started getting into the actual, like, fandom part of it, like, pretty recently compared to everything. Um, it was right around, like, the beginning of the pandemic where I was working a lot and not spending any of that money. And I was like, I could buy a fursuit right now. And it kind of just hit me, like, <laughs> suddenly. I was like, I have enough money in my bank account right now that I'm not going to spend to buy a fursuit. Um, so I just did a ton of research and started following a lot of people and started getting more into, like, the actual, like, people um, in the fandom. Um, I don't know a whole lot of them by, like, name or anything, but, like, because I'm following so many fursuit artists, it just shows up on, like, my Twitter feed and, like, a based on your likes kind of stuff. Um and then I got a fursuit, <laughs> finally, um, in December of last year. Um, and his name's Atticus, and he's my fursona, and I love him so much. Um, and I am kind of, because I have a fursuit, um, in, like, I guess in just, like, general spaces, I'm seen as, like, the hardcore furry. Um, but I, I don't really dip, like, similar to Flan, I don't really dip as much, like, into the huge community. I kind of s- sit on the outskirts of it. Um, but compared to, uh, just people you would walk by on the street, yes, I, I, I do own a fursuit, so I, I can't really beat off the allegations <laughs> any longer. <laughs> I feel like for me, I was never, I don't know, I think I was definitely susceptible to, you know, the, the more like mass media narratives about furries, um, when I was younger but i was never in the like you know it's it, it's fun and cool to make fun of furries zone necessarily mm-hmm. it was more like you know i was on tumblr i wasn't around many furries but i was around a couple of of people who were at least curious about it and you know was very much in the uh you know that that, that was a very like you know no cringe all all sincerity kind of right community and period um and by the time i was kind of done with that uh i was friends with a lot of uh transgender people (laughs) (laughs) yeah that tends to be how it works the story is just you don't even if you didn't want to you could just stop there and we could just extract yeah (laughs) And the rest is history. Yeah, no, I mean, my, um, my, my long-term partner while I was in school had, uh, various sorts of sonas, not explicitly a fursona, but, um, you know, a lot of things in that sort of ballpark. And, um, I feel like my vibe ever since has been, again, like, if I was, you know, um, dating someone who was a furry or, like, had a close friend who, like, 
I, I don't know, because for me, it's like the the drive to have a fursona is there, but I have no idea what it would be. And I feel like I've I've said that a few times. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, as as I've come to come to get a little looser about it, it's like yeah, I I like this stuff. I like these types of characters. So you know, I'm 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 in it. Yeah, that's like. I mean, I have a similar experience where, like, I'll design a character to represent myself. Like, I'll try to design a persona, and then they've just sort of, oops, they have their own personality, and they're just an OC now. And, like, they never end up sticking, and I just end up (laughs) shuffling them out, and, like, they end up just doing their own thing over there. Um, But also, it's just, like, it's, to me, it's such, like, a nebulous word. Like, it it can range from, like, I particularly enjoy the classic Bugs Bunny cartoons to like right. I or to like more like Therian or other kin type people who are very like attached to like their animal or have some sort of spiritual belief attached to it or they just look up adult content or like it could be there's anywhere <laughs> yeah. in that spectrum and then 17 other directions and the word it's it's a good starting point but then you have to kind of ask follow-up questions <laughs> Right. It's interesting that you say, like, bring up the whole Therian thing, because, like, as someone who, like, is also in Therian spaces, I, like, the furry and Therian overlap almost, like, isn't there for me. Like, being Therian is, like, completely, like, separate from also being a furry. Um, so it's just, I, I think it's interesting. Yeah, it's like, and people define what being a furry is in a multitude of different ways. Some people, like, don't like the term, even though they identify with things that you may think make them part of the community, um, because of the, you know, negative stereotypes associated with furries and stuff like that. Um, some people really identify with the term and really like it. Um, it's just a yeah. very vast community. Yeah, and I think, you know, what you're speaking to with the uh, theory and furry divide um, can sort of be reflected in, again, those uh, narratives about furries that we see, where when we had the um, the fake news uh, last year and the year before about, like, litter boxes in schools, there, there was, you know, <laughs> the furry label was often attached to that, even though yeah. it, 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 even if, if such a thing were true, it couldn't possibly be related to furries. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> but that's, like, I... I've I've seen it both ways where I've seen there's a, a an artist that I follow who is both and considers suiting to be a part of how they like mm-hmm. experience a spiritual aspect mm-hmm. and I've also seen yeah. posts from Therians calling like for his like cheap larpers mm-hmm. um and like yeah. not wanting nothing to do with them and like w- wishing that they were like eradicated from like the earth from like giving them a bad yeah, yeah. image and then vice versa the people that are like oh my god you can't actually be doing this can you like you you know like there's this weird sort of again it's there with I've I've kind of said this before, but with calling it a fandom when there's no central singular piece of media, <laughs> like, it's not like, you know, oh, I'm a fan of Marvel comics, and then you can sort of, like, whatever. Right. It's just, I'm a fan of something that has to do with the concept of an anthropomorphic animal, or at the very least, just yeah. an animal with personality. It doesn't even have to be the stereotypical, like, standing on two legs, just with some sort of speaking human personality. It could mean anything and there are like a thousand different splinters that all hate each other a little bit (laughs) right yeah because like people who like warrior cats and people who like like sparkle dogs which are more of the like i guess they're usually called like feral where they're like 
walking on all fours but still kind of have that like anthropomorphic personality are also considered furries mm-hmm. um yeah it's huge and it's crazy <laughs> yeah and i think the relationship that we were speaking to a moment ago it, it, it kind of reminds me of the relationship between like trans people and drag where they are not the same thing and there is overlap and yeah. tension in those communities and yet to the person who has an interest in kind of putting them in a box they they don't really mm. they don't really care about the differences yeah the drag fandom the dra- <laughs> <laughs> yeah the transgender I'm fandom and also no literally i'm part of the transgender <laughs> fandom yeah <laughs> yeah i need a drag and it also sure. is <laughs> no literally i you don't have one <laughs> I should. I've I've probably yeah. said that I have one, but <laughs> yeah, I could probably like Google. I, I probably look up you know from New Rocky tweets drag and find like you know seven to forty different. Yeah. <laughs> <drag names. laughs> um, yeah, and the other thing about the whole like fandom aspect of it is that um, like like you're saying, Juan, uh, there's no central like thing that people can be obsessed with so people instead become obsessed with like random like content creators and stuff like that um which is always so strange to me because like there's like big furries and like i i I don't like i don't follow big furries um but there's like this interesting uh like part of the community that exists and we can maybe get into this a little bit later too um that where it's like uh people who follow the creators and then people who follow the characters because furry characters like have developed their own fandom around them almost like Mm -hmm. people can get merchandise of someone's character and like not even care about the actual artist um yeah and so it becomes this like um they're almost like content creators but furries are usually a lot smaller than content creators um but it's still kind of that like feeling and also this like weird like is it about the person is it about their fursona kind of in between areas. Yeah, I've I've definitely seen that with like VTuber, especially in like the rise of the VTuber yeah, era. Like there, yeah, yeah. there are people I'm not gonna say any by name, but there's definitely people who <laughs> like they're really big and I see them a lot, but I don't actually know what their like viewer account number looks like because it seems like people yeah, mostly just no. care because the design of the character is cool. And that kind of goes for yeah, a lot exactly. of VTubers, but it especially just reflects on the furry fandom that it just tends to be like, oh, this car- a guy has like a cute fox character. So I'm just going to like, anytime, I'm never going to watch his streams, but anytime this character comes up, I'm all about it and I'm going to buy merchandise just because I want it on yeah. my shelf. <laughs> yeah. And that goes also with like, um, Oh god, wait, I hold on. I literally just had a point. I forgot it. Come back to me. Come well yeah, it's me. like um <laughs> and as we get into the history, I think we'll find it's really interesting that um it starts as an affinity for these certain types of characters, like particularly in I, I animation, but um mm. it's sort of a self reflexive fandom in this interesting way where and I think part of that is that it started as like these parties that 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 people who knew each other would have at like at conventions yeah. and so it becomes like they're all fans of each other as the community grows yeah um oh i remember the point i was gonna make before is that um and then that whole like affinity with characters thing kind of bleeds into like the whole adoptables uh section of sure. the internet of like people who like buy and trade just character designs um and like i don't know what it means i think there's a really like interesting conversation to be had about like what it means to be attached to like 
a design that someone made and not like the actual character even the actual character behind it and much less the artist behind it um and how those things kind of get it's like nfts for gay people <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah i think that to combine sort of both of those points uh when it comes to being a fan of people because uh what i've seen especially with adoptables though this goes i guess i've seen adoptables outside of the furry community to a lesser extent but mm. it's to a lot of people like it's like 50 percent. oh this is like a cool design and i really like the design and 50 percent. i have something made by this person and now i get to be yeah. like oh i have a character that was designed specifically by this person this goes like double for people who like have an original like species or something that they made up and then you get to go yeah, like, like i'm part of like a club that get, has like this kind of character made by the original person and it's like a weird status sort of debacle mm-hmm. and then yeah. you get into people who are just like i'm not i could just draw that <laughs> <laughs> and then i think that also like it's hard we're getting really tangential here um um like i i'm wondering if there's a correlation there between like this um idea of these you know drawings and stuff being a status symbol and the fact that pretty much every not every furry but a lot of big furries that you meet are rich like rich people Mm. because they can afford these you know astronomically expensive fursuits and hundreds and thousands of dollars worth of art for their characters and stuff like that um and just the the monetary value that is associated with like being a big furry or like a fursuit artist or like a you know art adoptable artist or artist in general yeah, I wonder if there's something to, like, you know, people who don't have the kind of money to, like, have a fursuit and present as these characters in public, um, you know, the the concept of a... It, it, it sort of ties into the, like, the, this, the online identity phenomenon of the past, you know, 15, 20 years, where, like, you know, adoptables and all these things are a way to... are sort of a facsimile for that experience for people who can't afford to you know fully realize their 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 characters yeah and there's like a lot of um honestly there's like a lot of classism in the fandom especially when you in the furry fandom especially when you get into the like actual fursuiter spaces Mm -hmm. um because a lot of like furry conventions like you will get like not you will like without a doubt 100 percent certain but like there's a high chance that if you don't wear like a fursuit or at least some sort of like furry element to a comic you'll get made fun of for it um because like you are you like don't have a fursuit how could you be a real furry kind of thing when a lot of people like it's a really really expensive hobby to get into um yeah there's there's a lot of like class aspects to it yeah um, and as we'll get into more i wonder if some of the like you know, media emphasis on fursuits, first of all, but also, like, the, you know, Anthrocon world record thing, and, like, you know, it feels like, especially after, you know, some of the early communities kind of dissolved, as we'll get into, I think, you know, the the new spaces like Anthrocon sort of latched onto that very sort of marketable image. Yeah, and the almost, like, recognizing that you're cringe so making it so visible that people like give you attention because of like like because furries have such this reputation of being like the cringe people like the 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 weird ones um and like i think there is some empowerment that comes with like i yeah i'm weird and i'm gonna show that visibly but there's also yeah just that image attached to it of like 
a room full of fursuiters is a lot more interesting than like a room full of people who enjoy furry. <laughs> and I think it's also like to an extent I feel like people at like furry conventions are on edge about there being like you know people who are just there to you know rubberneck effectively and just like stare and be like oh my god this is so funny and so the people there who are wearing it like a two thousand three thousand dollar investment are probably just not not just there to like make fun of you <laughs> um <Yeah. laughs> like they're probably at least a little bit invested um right. yeah. so it's just sort of like looking for some sign though i will also say that um uh when a lot of stuff was online for a while and the the rise of sort of vr chat stuff people obviously end up getting these custom vr chat models that are incredibly grandiose and well-made and all cost nearly as much as a physical fursuit but there are also just bases and stuff that you can just sort of tweak yourself mm. that are not really that expensive maybe like 50 dollars or less that you can then sort of do the whole like i'm running around talking to people as the character that i made up and it's really cool without having this gigantic investment up front um, and I feel like that also makes it a little bit more accessible, but there's still definitely like this sort of feeling of prestige or it's either prestige from having been able to afford it from someone who's really good at it or just the genuine pride that you were able to make something of that caliber for people who make their own or people, yeah. it, even just the difference between, you know, people who draw their own content versus commission content, stuff like that. It's, it's all over the place, mm. you know? Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of just like physicality and like like ownership attached to, um, and some of that is like just pride and like this like very personal experience of like finding this like not like physical connect like physical connection I guess like this like actual like feeling of connection with like a character that you've made and like being able to like like you said like self act like actualize that in real life, um, yeah. so let's um get into our history here uh i have a lot of notes on sort of the prehistory of of furries and sort of how this fandom developed because it is this very specific thing and um i think that'll sort of lead into more conversations about the the community as it is so forty thousand years ago The, f- the first known anthropomorphic figure was sculpted. Awesome. Yeah, it's nicknamed the Lohenmensch or Lion Man. It's an ivory sculpture that was discovered in Germany in 1939. It is the oldest verified statue ever discovered and considered by some to be the oldest evidence of religious belief. Wait, I want to look up what this looks like. Proof that it's always, it's always, it's always wolves and it's always big cats. It's always... <laughs> oh, he's a baddie though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's crazy. <laughs> a more recent example is the sorcerer, a French cave painting from around 13,000 BCE um, that depicts a creature comprising traits of like many animals, and that figure is also typically interpreted as religious. Um, and we see in a lot of these like very early, again, the Lone Mench is the oldest like statue that's ever been discovered. So we we see, you know anthropomorphization as a key facet of storytelling and creativity uh going back to prehistory 
And the archaeologist Stephen Mithen argued that the emergence of anthropomorphic art coincides with the emergence of more advanced hunting practices in the Upper Paleolithic, and that, you know, once you move beyond, like, the basic, like, survival and killing and all that, um, the human mind, human intelligence develops to the point where we could identify empathically with both prey and predator. So uh, as religion continued to develop, the being's worship became increasingly humanoid, increasingly anthropomorphic. You know, it goes from uh, worshiping the sun to imagining the sun as an individual. Um, Forces of nature were represented in humanoid form, and in many early cases, there were fusions of human and animal, such as um, Anubis or Horus from from Egyptian mythology. Sick fursuit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You see it. You do see it. To this day, you see it. Yeah, <laughs> you do. So out of religion comes the tradition of storytelling and fables. Personified forces of nature gave way for a personification of specific animals. An early instance of a fable is the Sumerian Debates, a series of topical short stories from the 3rd millennium BCE. These include the debate between summer and winter, the debate between silver and copper, and the debate between bird and fish. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, Aesop's fables are full of anthropomorphized animals. The tortoise and the hare is the classic one, the wolf in sheep's clothing, lion and the mouse, you know. They, uh, practically all of them are about animals uh, getting into situations. <laughs> Put that animal in a situation. <laughs> and then, you know, from fables, you have fairy tales, which often feature talking animal characters, and there are talking animals in the Bible, uh, a lot of major religions, um, then they get depicted frequently in art, these human-animal sort of hybrids. You can see them in illuminated manuscripts. You can see them all the way through to the Renaissance. Uh, they're very common in Japanese folklore, uh, one of them being the, the shape-shifting cat entity Bakeneko, and stories of Bakeneko sex workers were popular during the Edo period, which by the 18th century transformed into the cat girl. Yeah! <laughs> it's in it's in the 1700s i don't remember when that we see like the first use of the the word cat girl in japanese that's crazy yeah wasn't i thought it was earlier than that i thought like i i think cat boy was used like way earlier than that and also like has been seen in like western like literature and stuff i know like isaac newton or whatever like like to be a cat boy Mm -hmm. um (laughs) <laughs> i don't know much more than that though yeah i yeah. think um like i said there were like prior stories about like cat women in in yeah in, in japan going a long way back uh to like the 1400s but like that the the word cat girl in japanese that's the first uh known appearance of it mm. uh these stories surged in popularity however after the rise in literacy and mass media during the industrial revolution so you have these mass-produced dime novels they were genres like fantasy, horror, science fiction, and children's literature. So, you know, anthropomorphized animals and, and sort of fantasy creatures all mm-hmm. come into that quite a bit. The notable early examples are like Alice in Wonderland in the 1860s, The Jungle Book in the 1890s, uh, Peter Rabbit at the turn of the 1900s. Uh, another major influence, if you're looking at American pop culture, is the stories of Br'er Rabbit, a black folklore character tracing back to African storytelling traditions, many of which feature an anthropomorphic rabbit. Um, and those stories were introduced to a white audience by the very successful white author Joel Chandler Harris. 
Um, but he wasn't the first. Some of the earliest printings of the Br'er Rabbit stories were published in Harper's by Robert Roosevelt, uncle of Theodore Roosevelt. Huh. Of course, it's the uncle of the yeah, guy was... who ended up being the name for the bear. It, it all, everything, yeah. everything is connected. All... Pay close attention. <laughs> there will be a test. Yeah. Wow. I was going to say, this is not related to furries at all, but I always forget how old Alice in Wonderland is. Yeah. Like, <laughs> 1860s? That's crazy. That's yeah. crazy. <laughs> Yeah, and, and and when you realize how old it is, you sort of see how it like influenced everything. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It's like wild. Um She was just a girly. She was literally just a girly. She was. She was the girly. A girly in her dink. <laughs> uh Br'er Rabbit's origins have also been tied to some of the local native mythologies in North America. Uh many of those also feature anthropomorphic animals, uh, as we expect at this point. The arrival of comic strips provided a a real new medium for these creatures. One artist at the forefront of the movement was Jimmy Swinnerton, whose comic The Little Bears has been called the first true comic strip and the first instance of the funny animal. Yeah, love the term the funny animal. Guy. Yeah, it, the funny animal. Yeah, funny animal is one of my. I call I call my dog that all the time. Um, <laughs> But I also feel like, yeah, the first instance of the funny animal is a great... Yeah, the, like, capital pro... Like, the I want the taxonomical, yeah. like, like, Latin name for funny animal. That's what I want. <laughs> so, uh, we could get into this a little more, but a funny animal, in case you don't know, uh, is an anthropomorphized cartoon animal who lives and acts almost entirely like a human. Um, they may not necessarily have humanoid features as much although sometimes they do but they like talk and you know wear clothes and drive cars and stuff <laughs> they have problems <laughs> garfield garfield exactly garfield swinnerton went on to create another it's funny animal mr jack who is a philandering playboy tiger uh but things really t- yeah i mean <laughs> <laughs> But things really took off with the strip Crazy Cat by George Harriman a year later. That was a very popular comic strip. Um, and then animation provided a new opportunity to bring these characters to life, combining the humanoid forms of the, of the funny animal comics with the, like, established mannerisms of minstrel shows. Uh, the first cartoon funny animal was, uh, was old Doc Yak, who was a popular comic strip character, and the first successful cartoon character, Felix the Cat, quickly got his own comic strip. Uh, but pretty soon you had every, like, cartoon and animation, like, company wanting their own, again, minstrel-inspired funny animal. That's where Mickey comes from. That's where Bugs Bunny comes from. Uh, and the rest is history when you're talking funny animals. I, I feel like it's particularly <laughs> funny, not just in retrospect, the fact that his name is Bimbo, um, but mm-hmm. Betty Boop's little dog, um, mm-hmm. uh, that I feel like that's the first instance with cartoons when the Hayes Code got introduced where they were like, man, her boyfriend can't be a dog. <laughs> 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 They were like, this is a step too far. We have to change this. She can't be dating a a two-foot anthropomorphic dog. (laughs) Her bimbo boyfriend. Her bimbo boyfriend. That is really interesting, actually, because I think when you go into, like, the 50s and 60s, it becomes more, once again, like, these are for kids. So Mm -hmm. I do think that, like, the Hayes Code and the Comics Code and all that um, probably were a lot of the reason for that, because in the 40s you have, like... 
you know, obviously the, your wartime shorts and your Looney Tunes and Silly Symphony stuff that adults are reading, but you also have like Animal Farm, uh, and you know, like the Felix Salton novels that we'll get into in a bit. But like, you know, they, they are sort sort of consumed by everyone. You also see a lot of um, animal costumes in like theater and vaudeville and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so first fursuits, yeah. So so I really do think that like that you know conservative post war jump is kind of where things have have like a reset yeah um i literally made a powerpoint about like adult animation and why there's not a whole lot of like there for for a brief moment there wasn't a whole lot of like adult like anthropomorphic characters and like adult um just like silly funny like haha humor comics but like i I really all does boil down to the haze code um and you know by the time that's eliminated and people can kind of um start making this this type of media again disney has kind of already cinched the market on you know cartoons and especially like anthropomorphized cartoons and stuff like that being you know the family medium and like the 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 kids thing um i i will never forgive disney for what they did to animation and what the the um kind of reputation that they gave to animation as a whole and when it comes to stuff like that especially it's like from that point onwards i would say especially with with uh funny animals we to this day it's any time that you see one that's here for adults that is not in some niche online space but in like the the popular culture uh we are still doing uh oh, the name is escaping me now but the uh the ralph bakshi movie about the cat that's x-rated um fritz the cat yeah fritz uh it's still fritz it's still like situations like to jump to the opposite of the spectrum is stuff like ted like where it's still like oh it's like a funny animal but he says he says no no words and drinks beer and it's like really raunchy and it's really out there and it's all like it's played completely as like a joke it can never be something that's like serious or has like a real plot it's just like exaggerated like for whoa isn't that like crazy because <laughs> the joke is that like this should be for kids yeah and it's not yeah. and or it's also like you know brian griffin or bojack horseman mm-hmm. where like they are sort of playing off of the expectation that you, you know having these sort of like depressed adult characters yeah. but it's also they can't act like cartoons at the same time yeah it's like the whole like I'm even thinking of like um, Ugly Sonic in the the new Chip and Dale movie. I don't remember mm. what it's called. Mm-hmm. Um, how it's it's always like though it's like they're like washed up actors almost. And even Bojack is like actually a wa- like a washed up right. actors. I mean, I've never I've never watched Bojack, um, but like it's like interesting to see where I don't know I I don't know I can't figure out where it like comes from. I guess it's just the whole like a, someone who has to put on an act to like. You know, it's almost like the the whole mascot like joke of like when someone takes off a mascot head, they're like a disgruntled like adult who's like getting paid minimum wage at the end mm-hmm. of the day. But it's like that's the character, like that's the person. So they're kind of always putting on the show of like being a silly like funny animal. And so like when it's like behind the cameras, they're like this you know drug addicted washed up adult who's <laughs> it's a, uh, yeah. edgy Roger Rabbit, going. edgy Roger Rabbit. Yeah, really exactly. <laughs> 
Yeah, and you, you, you can look at Roger Rabbit as an example of, like, something that sort of broke through out of novelty, but I think if yeah. you look at Animaniacs, you have a very clear example of, like, what they clearly wanted to do is something that's really in the vein of the Looney Tunes cartoons, where it's not textually made for kids at all, yeah. and yet you see that, like, the studio sort of forcing their hand to, like, have a song and uh, at least half-hearted lesson in yeah. in all these episodes and to introduce kid-friendly characters as as you get into later seasons um which i think is uh something that a lot of a lot of animated shows have had to deal with and you also look at when people were initially trying to reintroduce the idea of like adults consuming animation at all they had to be like no but it's like a sitcom and they're all yeah. people and there's a laugh track and you know like the, the, the not not just the flintstones i think there was one before the flintstones where it was just like a family and like a house but but you see how like they people feel stuck with, with, when they're trying to like bring it, make animation for adults, and I think you still see that to this day, yeah. um, where there are people who are just making animation for adults, and yet they can't, a they can't get the the animation fans into it, and b they sort of can't do something in a traditional style of animation, um, because no one would go for it, and. I think when when we look when we get into the era where the furry fandom starts to develop, what we see is that it develops out of underground comics in the seventies. Yeah, as someone who makes animation for adults, um, and like has struggled a lot with that, like um, that weird line of like I want to kind of make stuff that's like semi traditional and like in style, um, but is very much geared toward adults. I think one of the kind of the biggest hurdles I've had to come up like jump over is the fact that like most at least like most big name studios are going to see an animation of characters doing things that people could do and go well why don't we just make people do it because it's cheaper and it's easier um and like because one of the core cruxes of animation is sort of exaggeration is making you know these animal characters because you can do a lot with them you can you know ears can express emotion tails can express emotion and these characters can kind of act like animals but still exhibit like humanistic traits um if you don't have that like exaggeration element and you kind of just want to tell like a story um it's it like there's this really big disparity between like what people are expecting out of an animation which are these like loony characters are getting hit by anvils and popping back up and being completely fine and like what the content is which is just like you know someone trying to make um something that like can be taken seriously and can be just enjoyed as a piece of media that tells a story and not a piece of media that's telling this over exaggerated like lesson of life or something like that i feel like that's it that's goes double for like this this like earlier era and like leading up to sort of like i don't know even up to like animaniacs era and then once you start to hit like the 2010s and people who are not considered extreme social outcast nerds have like a concept of the internet and what goes on on the internet um and people start to know what the furry fandom is just like i won't go too ahead of the of the timeline but just to say like eventually it sort of just slides into a new problem which is people seeing literally anything with an anthropomorphic character anywhere in the advertising go oh this is furry bait and then writing it off and and then it's it's over (laughs) Yeah, and I think you have sort of, t- we'll, we'll get into this more later, but I think you sort of have two competing forces today where it is, uh, people who are adults and have not developed a taste in media for adults and are like, you know, this kid's movie is really good. This new, 
uh, uh, DreamWorks <laughs> animated movie. Yeah. It's like, and it's like, you can say Puss in Boots, it's okay. Yeah, and, and, or, or, yeah, but, um, <laughs> and, you know, they sort of have this complex about being taken seriously for watching cartoons, and it's like, you know, you could stand to watch some of the animation that's made for adults. And then you have people, I think Netflix is one of the companies that really is investing in, like, kind of trying to put out animation for adults. And we saw that last year with Wendell and Wild and Pinocchio. Um, But in terms of marketing, they have a hard time finding people who are going to watch those because those same people who are sort of treating themselves as the vanguard as like the spokesman of animation are like put off by anything that's not kid friendly in animation. <laughs> yeah. And I even think because I think a lot of what it's getting this is going all the way back to the the first thing that I one of the first things that you said Flan is like that I think a, one of the big reasons that animation today is being taken at least a little bit more seriously and it's gearing towards like young adult audiences like the anime boom um and because they see that anime is a really big market i mean netflix has their own like anime studio and things like that now and when you come back to like very early internet days anime and furries were very much against each other and i think they still are today people who i mean not so much furries towards anime because like anime is kind of just like worldwide well known right now but like just like the standard anime fans like the you know the like hype beast anime fans like they're gonna see a furry and they're gonna laugh um and so trying to bridge that gap trying to be like hey we can like okay we're already we're starting to take animation seriously how can we now bring these characters in i mean b star is like a a, a, i think the only example i can think of um but i think that that conflict is still there because there's still those that um you know that that feud between those two those two eras of not eras um but those two like communities on the internet yeah it's i think the only other one that i've seen that took off at all was bna brand new animal uh that took off a lot as well um but what is also worth getting into a little bit later is that it's still for most of the show the main character is still a cat girl effectively um Mm. she occasionally becomes more of an animal i think but like she's mostly just a cat girl um and that seems to be this like magical middle ground that a lot yeah. of media goes for. It's like it's not the furries don't really want to claim that that's a furry because it's still just a human wearing cat cat ear headband. But the anime fans don't really mind it, so like, well, both sides can tolerate it. And this character is allowed to have like a real story. Like this character yeah. is human looking enough that it's not a funny animal, and we can treat it like it matters. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. which is weird because. um I feel like nowadays, like, very, very, very contemporary internet cat girls have now been just sexualized. Like, it's, and it's like, um, we kind of have this, this same, dis- like, argument, um, but of the, like, people who really want, you know, kids TV shows to be taken seriously and people who, like, think that, um, like animation has to be like gritty and like this very specific type of but it's like kind of the opposite now where it's like you have these people who are like heavily sexualizing these characters and still really want them to be taken seriously um mm-hmm. and it's like it, it it's hard to take a character seriously when like the only media that exists of it is like hentai porn mm-hmm. um but, but the, and then like the people who are on the opposite side of that which is like can we please have you know characters with these cool stories and not be constantly sexualizing them 
to 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 get back into the history and i i think that's <laughs> what i want to touch on with 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 these ideas uh, in 1923, Hungarian Jewish author Felix Salton publishes his novel Bambi, a uh, parallel for Jewish persecution in Europe that was later adapted into a feature film by Disney. Um, that definitely... completely misses all of those. Yeah. <laughs> um, Salton's novels lay the groundwork for modern furry fiction. I think he wrote the thing that was adapted into The Shaggy Dog also. Um they were largely marketed towards kids, but, you know, Salton's stories had a little more actual story to them. Um, and like I said, it was the advent of Looney Tunes, Silly Symphonies, comic strips, Animal Farm, that sort of stuff, where, like, it's a moment where we start, where, again, like, funny animals are just kind of the moment. And meanwhile, over in Japan at around the same time, novelist Kenji Miyazawa published The Fourth of Narcissus Month, which is considered the origin of the modern cat girl. Um, and of course, cat girls and cat boys are this distinct thing from furries, uh, considered a distinct interest, but they overlap heavily at the, the late 80s conventions where the furry community was born. So there's very sort of intertwined, uh, and I mean, it's, it's similar ideas. It's just, you know, one is, is more, it, it, it's different cultures that it's coming from. It's different sort of, sort of histories, but, you know, they intersect at many points. Artists and writers in the industry were referring to these characters as funny animals by the 1940s, uh, but the Fawcett comic book Funny Animals, there, there was a comic book called Funny Animals that sort of solidified the term nationwide, and that comic also features a rabbit version of the character Captain Marvel, who we now know as Shazam, uh, who, and that, you could sort of see that as like a precursor to the fursona concept. Oh, so is Shazam the first the first person with a persona the, the first fictional character say. with their own persona the first fictional character with their own persona yeah uh, congratulations <laughs> i mean and then in the 1947 novel three ways to mecca there's a character who wears a custom german shepherd suit both publicly and privately uh out of a desire that the character believes he got from seeing a cartoon of a moose driving a car <laughs> <laughs> real like real honestly <laughs> honestly like like we see that sort of encapsulation of like you know a, a lot of a lot of ideas that we consider very modern about about furries mm. you know for one reason or another tapped into in this novel from the 40s yeah uh as disney broadened its horizon they found ways to bring their funny animals with them in person costumed versions of mickey minnie and donald duck appeared at the 1937 premiere of snow white and the seven dwarfs the first disney movie um more elaborate costumes were introduced to the ice capades in the 40s and to disney's first theme park in the 50s we'll, we'll get into how the costumes sort of develop more and um in the 60s you see mr matt and then like a decade later, you see the San Diego chicken. I think a lot of the conventions of like how you act in fursuits and like how, how fursuits look and sort of that. I, I think a lot of those ideas really come from mascots, um, which yeah, of course, absolutely. you know, mo uh, bef before the, before you really had fursuiters, it was also just like people were buying mascot costumes or, or yeah. wore them for work. And then, you know, that, that's where it well, all comes from. Because I know, again, I apologize, I'm jumping a little bit further into history, but I know that, like, um, at least within the furry fandom, people kind of um, see this guy named, his name's Robert Hill, as, like, the mm -hmm. first, like, fursuit creator. And he was a former Disney employee who was making costumes of the characters based off of the characters that he designed when he was at Disney. Um, so there's always been this very, very integral 
tie between like Disney and Disney style and like the traditional fursuit style that you commonly see, um, you know, just in general public, with general public, but like in the furry community and furry fandom. And I will say that in that sort of vein, um, because these were mostly done by, you know, big companies or baseball teams with a lot of money, um, it is funny to watch sort of when it does hit the start to hit fandom spaces only, you know, 20, 30 years after where we are in this timeline, uh, everybody has to figure everything out from scratch. And the kind of scary, like, early 30s, 40s sort of, I don't know what I'm doing, God help me, uh, sort of comes back again in the 80s when people just are trying their best. (laughs) They're putting carpet samples together. Yeah. (laughs) Damn. So like we said, uh, Funny Animals largely became Children's Fair once again during the conservative 50s. Um, it's in the 60s that you start to see counterculture figures like Fritz the Cat, Kimba the White Lion, you see Watership Down, um, these underground comics starting to develop. Uh, you already have Mad by this point, but like the sort of comic scene is mostly fans of Mad. Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, Voody, which we'll get into in a second, uh, is named after a character from a mad comic and and you also have like snoopy (laughs) (laughs) yeah because because even though snoopy Snoopy is this is this very max market mass market and even like seen as kid-friendly thing he becomes a counterculture figure in the 60s and that is sort of the moment where it's like you know funny animal taken seriously and then i think you see that again with garfield in the 70s not as much counterculture but like you know people people are into him um, like Hello Kitty and like the yeah. era and Peppa Pig. <laughs> so the underground comic scene gives us Voody, which was an amateur press for cartoonists who were interested in funny animals. It cheekily described itself as the official organ of the Funny Animal Liberation Front. Yeah, the Funny Animal <laughs> Liberation Front. God, sign me up. <laughs> yeah. And uh, as I said, the name Voody came from a Mad Magazine parody of J. Fred Muggs. Um, all these artists were heavily influenced by Mad. I don't think any of them came from Mad, but it's just like, you know, that is where you saw, like, weird different kind of comics, you yeah. know, sometimes making their way into, like, your local comic shop. That's, like, the underground comic. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Voodoo comics often dealt with adult themes. Uh, Omaha the Cat Dancer is an example that has uh, explicit sex scenes in it. And and Voodoo contributors started to meet at conventions. But, like, you know, things fizzled out after, like, a couple years over there. And then the Voodoo contributors launched uh, a a new press, Rab Razzle, which um, is seemingly still ongoing. Uh, I think, like... The last confirmed issue published is in, like, 2022, but they don't have much of a footprint anymore, and it's, like, not entirely clear. Um, but, but you know, kept going for, like, 40 years. Yeah. Yeah, and the the, the sort of shift from Voodoo to Brazil is, is where you see... It, it's seen as a turning point from, like, funny animal fans to furries. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in 1985, two different groups of funny animal enthusiasts had parties during Comic-Con, uh, one of them was Rob Razzle, another one was the Cartoon Fantasy Organization, and it quickly became a tradition to have these these parties for funny animal fans during San Diego Comic-Con every year. That makes a lot of sense, actually, because, like, party culture and, like, especially, like, rave culture is still a 
really really big part of like furry fandom um rave music and just like going to late night raves typically after cons is like tradition that's kind of where a lot of furries meet up and see each other and it's also the 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 idea because these were you know room parties to my knowledge it was you Mm -hmm. know you everybody goes back to one guy's you know hotel room and you either watch something together just hang out or whatever it and (laughs) as well as you know what we were talking about with the the content the early voody comics is that um as much as it would be a lot easier to explain to people if it were not, it is you can't really separate the aspect that there was always some kind of like sexual component to yeah. it. Like even you can't yeah. argue against it here. Like <laughs> there is an adult an adult component. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I think there's sort of an idea that like in an age where I mean it could really be in an age where pornography was pretty heavily criminalized uh you know having these sort of having somewhat fantasy characters in 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 these explicit contexts was like was like easier to to get by and you're right that there's always been uh, a a segment like whether it's 15 percent or 30 percent or whatever there's 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 a a segment of furries who there is a sexual element like you're saying yeah, but I also think it's worth noting that like the these breeding grounds, so to speak, for <laughs> no, go on, go on, not the point. breeding grounds. <laughs> Come on, <laughs> for for the furry community are just like people, mostly artists and craftspeople who just like know each other. Yeah, no, yeah, I was gonna say earlier that like um, the whole like criminalization of. Um, pornography and explicit material and the rise of furries reminds me a lot of like how people explain how like hentai got popular like tentacle porn um which is that like there was just a lot of censorship laws in japan and it was the only way to like make explicit content um that wouldn't be you know criminalized um there seems to be a and not necessarily an overlap but a parallel there totally so the same year there was also a furry party at uh westercon in sacramento this is the year after the first um, San Diego party. Um, that also became a tradition. And the next year, the Westercon one was explicitly called a furry party. Uh, so that, that's, you know, wh- where the term started to develop is um, we'll, like, get into it. It's a little unclear. But <laughs> but but by 1986, uh, that that's what people were calling them. In that context, furry almost seems more like an adjective, um, describing mm. the party of like mm. it's a party with a bunch of like furry animals and then it becomes a noun um mm-hmm. at furries like and so yeah that's it, it's cool <laughs> i'm totally. just saying it's cool <laughs> the furry community starts to coalesce at these parties uh, as well as on the early internet as we'll get into in a bit by 1988 the parties were getting too big to, to have in someone's yeah. room so um the, they, you know, they all got, all these people who attended these parties at Comic Con got together and had their own convention, Conference Zero, in 1989. Um, that was sort of the like leading furry convention until Anthrocon displaced it 10 years later. We'll get into why that happened. Uh, and furries at these conventions typically wore like ears and tails, if anything at all. It really wursn't you know, I mean, the idea of like f- fursuits were not really a thing at the beginning. So like, mm-hmm. 
you know, a lot of people just, just didn't dress up, but some people did. I think that sort of also reflects the crossover with like sci-fi and anime fans when you're looking at, yeah. at like Comic-Con, you know, they have these little costume pieces and all that. Um, but programming on furry costuming took place at the, at, at Conference Zero at the first ever furry convention. So the, the implication there that, you know, is, is historically agreed upon is that like fursuiting as a practice kind of started to nascently develop pre-convention in like the mid 80s yeah it's just a matter of accessibility because even even i know now like there's like one or two good quality distributors for the materials you use for the stuff and you're kind of beholden to when they're in stock or not and so they're not really being a centralized form of this i would imagine it was immensely difficult and that's also why i feel like a lot of those pictures from like mid 90s anthrocons look a little terrifying um is just because no one had access to the materials in enough quantity or quality to make anything that looked good yet so i can see why no one would really be like going to the first one or two or three in a fully formed costume and a lot of the stuff that needed to make fursuits is like I don't want to say it didn't exist back then, because, like, it obviously did. Um, but it's definitely been streamlined and more, um, both more accessible and just, like, more efficient, um, at, and, like, not full of carcinogens <laughs> and stuff like that with, like, the foams mm-hmm. and stuff that they're using. Um, and, like, faux fur wasn't really, like, a thing. Like, it, it, like, there's very much a lot of, like, there's a lot of synthetic stuff that goes into fursuits and there's a lot of, like, very, like, like, tech that goes into fursuits. Um, yeah. that, was still kind of being mainstreamed and streamlined um, during that era. Yeah, and I think it gets into how a lot of the, as you were sort of starting to talk about earlier, how a lot of the early early leaders in this movement were like industry professionals. We talked yeah. about Bob Hill, who was who was making costumes at Disney. Uh, Lance Ikegawa, who was another early fursuiter, um, it was a VFX artist. And uh, according according to him, fursuit was the word that was used for those types of, you know, the like creatures with fur in the VFX world mm-hmm. in the 80s, like as opposed to latex creatures or makeup effects. Yeah. You know, and, and then like Sean Keller was also one of the first fursuiters. Yeah, he was an animator, worked on, you know, Secret of Name, Great Mouse Detective, Little Mermaid, Mulan, Tarzan, Atlantis Lost Empire, more recently Space Jam, A New Legacy. Like a, like, That's crazy. Like a, very, <laughs> a, a very prolific animator. Um, and yeah, I think it really is people in... I, I mean, it's also the fact that these start, parties start to spring up in San Diego. I mean, it's it's people who are in the 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 entertainment space in one way or another who are like craftspeople who make these things for work that you know find this community together and they all know each other and i think there's also like something to be said about how a lot of them are animators because it's very hard to fully realize like a character that like really can only exist in a 2d space in a 3d world unless you have like a very secure knowledge of how to translate those things um how to make something 2d look 3d um and that is a natural skill that comes with being an animator and a vfx artist too probably totally so in the in the ensuing years, we start to see eastern offshoots of these organizations. Furry parties were hosted at Philcon in Philadelphia, and those later grew into Conference East. Uh, furry chat spaces started to pop up on the internet in 1990, and for reference, the internet was made available to the public in 1991. 
Furries predate the internet. Yeah, no, I mean, I mean, that just speaks again to like, and it's true for like, you know, we talk about it so often on this show, like the explosion of like nerd culture and fandom culture in the 2000s. Yeah. At this point, to be into, um, you know, underground comics, underground animation, uh, animation from other countries like anime, uh, uh, sci fi stuff, like you kind of had to be a hobbyist <laughs> you had yeah. to kind of be be really into the technical aspects of it yeah you had to like know what you had to, you had you kind of had to be a loser <laughs> which i think ends up being a little bit of the root of why the stereotype is you know the whole the whole jokes about yeah. like you know without furries the entire it infrastructure of the world would crumble tomorrow like, like it's true <laughs> <laughs> like it's it's just like i feel like it's just an inherent it's always been that route. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, like, like I was saying, you know, the internet is like a space for furries before it's, you know, a, a, a part of our lives. Like yeah. the, the, even further than just like the first furry role play chats pop up in like 1992, you know, like we, so when you look at the development of the furry community, a lot of it sort of happened in this weird sort of uh, liminal space in in like s- s- the internet and social identity and that sort of thing, where like it, it was during the transitory period between like nerd culture being this very insular, like you have to have have like an advanced degree <laughs> to be a part of it, <laughs> yeah. to being something that like totally controls all the spheres of media. Yeah. In 1997, Conference 8 sowed the seeds of controversy in the community. Uh, the, 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 the events had sort of developed a reputation over the years for being a wild party. Um, the major furry forums were overrun with complaints about public acts of sex and, and fetish at the, at these furry conventions. It was a, it was an inner community problem right at the moment that like media, was starting to was starting to look yeah. into them. So that's that's another part of the issue. Um this led to the creation of the Burned Furs, a group whose mission statement argued that, quote, anthropomorphic fandom is being overrun by sexually dysfunctional, socially stunted, and creatively bankrupt hacks and pervs. Uh, they're like <laughs> they're like religious freaks, but like for yeah, no. no, like a lot <laughs> like of them were purists. homophobic, a lot of them were Christian. Like it was it was it was a serious thing. Oh, that's 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 insane you can't like it's insane to like because this still happens like um like in the modern day like to be like conservative or to be like homophobic and like also be a furry it's like yeah like you're outnumbered <laughs> like you are not in the majority here it's probably the one space where you aren't in the majority it's and it is this is the root of i feel like a lot of things because the burn furs were so excessive and so like fundy rooted and i've like i've seen snippets of like their founders like tirades about whatever and they're (laughs) super just like i'm so much better than everyone else you guys are so gross you guys are disgusting um yeah but this also begins i think something of like being very careful because i see sometimes when anyone asks for any sort of less sexualized space that it becomes an immediate accusation of being the burn furs or like being burn furs yeah. too mm-hmm. um and that ends up to this day i feel like it's still like an intercommunity community issue of is it possible to make a 
furry space that is not that there is no pornography <laughs> like I, yeah. and i feel like this is the beginning if these if this hadn't been done this way it may not be this argument of every time it always comes back to you are the burned furs you are trying to completely eradicate because at this point i feel like most of the people who are still openly furries there's obviously exceptions but are lgbt or you know more open about sex like it's just like you can't act like they're not it's just you know this begins this weird interpolitical shift of funny animals like it becomes it's suddenly Mm -hmm. very political (laughs) yeah and and i i don't know i also think it's an interesting uh a refreshing bit of perspective when we sort of talk about our modern age to, to look at this and it's like, yeah, this group of furries were homophobes. And of course there's still homophobia, but I feel like the idea of homophobes as a movement feels like, <laughs> like, you know, if they're so today, like these, like, like these furries have this, have this organized thing that they want to change the community and they're all, and a lot of them are homophobes. It's like, what do you mean they're homophobes? <laughs> <laughs> at this point, everyone just makes like, fun of people crux- like that. Like, yeah. Yeah. It's just like, it all has to do with like these spaces popping up on not not popping up on the internet like in it entirely but like you're saying like they they rise when the internet was or they rise, rise like rose like right before the internet mm-hmm. um, they got raised up like, by livy <laughs> yeah <laughs> and um like it's it, it it can go for any thing that's on the internet where it's like there's never going to be like there's always going to be that argument of like something being pure and something being like sexual um and on top of that there's always going to be that kind of whole thing of like you're like a proud homophobe on the internet like what's going on here (laughs) yeah yeah it's it's sort of comforting to look at the 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 progress there yeah but the the, another funny thing about the burn first to me is that they were you know, some of them were homophobic. Some of them were engaging in violent threats, although there's no actual violence that took place. But once the burned furs start, you get the freezing furs who, who were formed in, in opposition to the burned furs. <laughs> and you get, uh, furry peace who were a centrist group. <laughs> everyone to get along. Furry centrists are so funny. I was so hoping you were going to call them like tepid. Like, it just, like, they're not hot, they're not hot, like, and they're just, like, room temperature, yeah. kind of stale. Like, <laughs> the tepid stale. Furs. Yeah. The Tepid Furs put out a good album around that time. <laughs> <laughs> it does sound like a furry's, like, uh, music uh, alias. Yeah. Uh, two years later, at Conference 10, the organizers had a new chairman who was, who, who was a burnt fur. And so the event was boycotted in favor of other furry conventions that had sprouted up, like Anthrocon. Um, so conference kept going for a couple of years after that, but it never recovered. Uh, uh, and the new conventions pretty much universally imposed rules about public sexual contact in order to, like, sort of get ahead of it. <laughs> Yeah. Which I think creates again this interesting this interesting dynamic that exists at these cons, where like th- they sort of have to, uh, you know, the the tepid fur is one like like they <laughs> they, they, <laughs> they they have to sort of you know 
be strict about it and and you know sort of give into some of those demands in order to yeah. prevent like you know more controversy yeah and it's like by you know a, like you're saying giving into these demands it inherently puts this association onto furries as a whole of like they have to put these things up or else the furries are going to go crazy at the con and you know start right. having sex in the streets um that that continues to follow the furry fan to this day. Totally. I do think that there is some sense of, like, people will test limits. There will always be someone who tests limits. And I think having a rule there's out before... There's always the inflatables. Yes. <laughs> there's always... <laughs> there's always, like, there's always someone who's going to try to push the boundary. And I think being able to say beforehand that you had a rule that they broke before they go, like, oh, well, I thought yeah. it would be okay because you didn't say that it wasn't. Even though they clearly knew, like, it's, it's like, an unspoken, like, you would figure it out. But they're like, oh, well, you didn't say yeah. I couldn't. I think it's good to have that in advance, especially um, because I know this, this happens with, like, you know, gaming events. This happens with whatever venues hate things like this venues hate dealing with these yeah. kinds of people of, of, yeah. whether they're nerds like of like for like anime or comic books it's better to just be like up front and hold your hands up and be like look we're just like any other people we're like any other business convention we're like the rv convention that comes here please leave us alone <laughs> yeah yeah the the rise of these conventions and parallel to that the rise in media coverage the first like you know, national media story about furries was in Wired, and there was also one Vanity Fair around that time, and they were all about sort of the sexual component. But then you also, in the 90s into the 2000s, see them portrayed on TV in, like, The Simpsons, ER, CSI, The Drew Carey Show, and again, all of these are sort of focused on that sexual element. Um, as you're having that, it creates uh, this need within the community and within the organizers of the events, especially, to make furries uh, marketable, to play into respectability politics. Yeah. And I'm wondering, because I know, and again, I'm jumping ahead, um, but I there's been like a lot of, not like a lot, but like a, a, a bubbling controversy, I suppose, on like Twitter, in like Twitter furry spaces uh, lately. Um where a lot of people are criticizing the fact that it, for a lot of furry conventions will support charities like a lot of conventions in general will support charities um but mm -hmm. furry conventions always are aimed at animal rights because it is the most non-controversial thing that you can put like charity money towards um and the kind of like crit critiques that people are having is like so much of this fandom is queer and so much of this fandom is, you know, like nerd everything or autistic. Like, why aren't we putting those money to those causes? Um, and I could see how it's probably because like, like even if so much of that fandom is X, Y, Z thing, they kind of have to, they're, they're still stuck in that. Like we need to appeal to the, like a pu general public so that we can at least just like get by in these public spaces for like our weekend at you know anthrocon or whatever yeah and they need to do everything in their power to avoid you know associations with bestiality yeah, yeah. i will say that on like the plus side that is like the, the one thing that i feel like does come out of the like sort of i guess you could call it like the respectability politics argument one of the few good things is the the sort of like I can't remember the exact name, but there's a couple of different, like, splinter groups that all effectively do the same thing that are effectively, like, you know, like, moms of furries that try to, like, run yeah. simultaneous, like, you know, teen-friendly events that aren't sexually oriented, but still let 
people like hang out with the fandom and stuff like that and still give like a space for people who really shouldn't be in adult spaces yet to still be a part of the fandom and to draw and to make friends and mm. stuff like that. And I feel like that is like the one good thing is that you have a ta- like a little table at like Midwest Fur Fest or Anthrocon or something where like, <laughs> you know, 15 year olds can all like draw and make little like masks together and stuff. Like, I don't know. It's, it's yeah. that, that one part of it. It's the more. I don't want to say that, like, it should be marketable, because I, honestly, I don't think it can ever be marketable. But <laughs> but it feels nice that there is some sort of way that over the years we've built up this sort of, like, sense that it's not just a complete oddball thing, that it's, you know, it can be fun, it can yeah. be, you can make friends, like, you know, like, because that's at the root of it. If there's no central piece of media, it's about who you hang out with and what you, you know, <laughs> what you make together. Yeah, and I think we see parallel things with other cons, where, like, again, all of these things you sort of had to be a hobbyist to be into. You had to have, like, rare VHS tapes or know how to, like, program mm. computers or something. Um, and and as those cons get bigger and the, the the fan culture starts to take over pop culture, those, 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 those cons need to get, like, squeakier and more Disney-fied in, in much the same way that, like... Hot topic <laughs> had had oh, yeah. dignified as time went on, like 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 all of those sort of like grungy underground kind of spaces, you know, become pop culture in the age of of the internet and direct connections with fans because they're the people who've really been in it. It's so ironic because furry started as the you know gr- grungification or gritification of Disney, and now it's looping back around to yeah now appealing. In fact, in 2016, BuzzFeed News uncovered that Disney was taking active steps to market its new film, Zootopia, to furries. Yeah. And and that's where it comes back (laughs) to what I mentioned earlier, where now, I think, especially ever since the very first trailers for Zootopia, which were... I don't remember it exactly, but it was a fact with just Nick Wilde, and then they like put him in a shirt and a tie. They're like, "Oh, look, he's a he's a talking per- animal person." Like, you know, they're basically like, "This is a furry," <laughs> um, and it's just him in a void. And basically, that's the whole trailer. Um, that was their teaser for Zootopia. Um, I feel like that's the beginning of people who both are, are not, and despise furries all like being able to point at. Uh, an advertising campaign or a new character and a new piece of media and go like that's furry bait I don't want any part of it or that's furry bait cool (laughs) (laughs) awesome hand it to me like that's where where it starts to shift from just uh, from just being like uh, funny animals are for little kids to oh cool it's a furry character or oh damn it it's a furry character (laughs) Yeah. yeah but it's an interesting thing about visibility where I think you know if 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 in the 70s it was like you know disney is marketing their new movie to funny animal fans it's like okay (laughs) (laughs) the funny animal fandom i wish it was still called that that. i'm I'm kind of mad we didn't keep that honestly we that is my one thing if we take anything away from this episode we need to bring bring that back bring back the funny animal fandom. when i talk about it and i with like friends or people even people i don't know super well and i just don't want to get into people like talking about like the stigma of the i'm just like i draw funny animals like i just i don't even say the word for yeah. animals. Be like i draw funny right. animals or i draw cartoon animals like <laughs> That was really funny. Yeah, I also feel like to get into what we were talking about earlier, 
with like fursuiters and the reputation of the community. I feel like something that pushes people away is that that fursuits are like you know obviously influenced by these mascot costumes and that is a much more yeah. specific thing than the you know everyone likes funny animals and i think yeah. if if you know if it was kind of if the image of the community was that there were people who were fans of funny animals i feel like it would it would seem less like this oddball thing than like these these mass media images that are you know a bunch of people in mascot costumes i feel like yeah. to an extent it comes down to almost like this is like the, the the double-edged sword of the classism thing is there's a difference between like i bought like a you know a vhs tape that has my favorite looney tunes cartoons on it versus like i spent x quadruple digit sum on a fursuit because at a certain point i feel like a lot of people see that number of that amount of money put on to any sort of collector hobby, whether it be, like, figurines or, like, you know, memorabilia or whatever, and be like, really? Like, that's... I feel like that's the line, and it's the problem is just that furries, first and foremost, the thing that people think of them as is you bought a custom mascot costume, and it cost that much money. (laughs) Yeah. And it's so, like, funny because... um... I don't know when if we go back to the whole like you know furries started on these like they helped like the internet boom and they are holding up the IT industry with their paws <laughs> um like people who work in IT can make a lot of money <laughs> and like people are a, a lot of people I think see furry suits and they're like um you spent your savings on that like that's what your priorities are when a lot of the time it's rich people who have that disposable income and are spending it on a fursuit um yeah and it's just like i think it's it's a lot more um and i'm not saying like rich people are justified in buying things more than you know working class people or whatever um but it's a lot it, to me, at least, it's a lot less lucrative to see a rich person who has nothing better to do but to buy, spend their money on a fursuit um, versus, like, a person who is, like, a chunk of a fandom who has all decided that fursuits are, like, the priority of their savings, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And it's an interesting thing to, to to look at some of the statistics that are out there about furries. Um <laughs> 15% of, of, of furries in the 2011 study said they owned fursuits, and 45% responded, not yet. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's really funny. That's a really funny thing to put on a survey. Yeah. So, so you know, I think we see that aspiration being a big part of the community, and I think it's really part of the community aspect that, you know... Um, uh it, it it's similar to me saying like like i like funny animals i don't have a fursona i feel like that would be a rite of passage for me mm-hmm. um i think i think you know wh- when you're in the community and you want to sort of engage with people and go to cons and that kind of thing it's kind of like you know it'd be cool if i had a fursuit and and yeah. it sort of develops from there it's like the top of the maslov's hierarchy for furries is like mm-hmm. fursuit like that's the self-actualization <laughs> is like fursuit <laughs> like <laughs> and i guess half of it is just how much you are into it and the other half of it is a, how much you go to physical spaces that have to do with the sort of thing mm. um yeah. cuz i see a lot of people who the kind of people who either they table like they sell stuff or they just are habitually like 
you know, at conventions, of course, they might have two, like, they might, you know, or at least it's like a, like a second head or something that they have multiple characters because they see it as either right. performing or it's, like, part of how they interact with people or they yeah. want to be recognized um, or whatever. But if you don't go to places that, like, do this sort of thing or if you just don't like crowds, it's much less, mm-hmm. I feel like it's much less common. So I feel like, in a way, it also just has to do with how... I don't want to say extroverted, but, like, how much you want to go to these kinds of places and, like, be seen. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's what I was going to say, is that, like, a lot... I feel like there's a lot of reasons why someone who is a furry would want to cover their face. Um, Mm -hmm. And a fursuit is a great way to do that. Um, Like, whether it be a lot of furries identify as queer, a lot of furries are neurodivergent and don't like eye contact, a lot of furries are young and don't want identifiable, like, characteristics, like, shown in public... Um, a lot of furries have have high profile positions and don't want it to necessarily be yeah. real, do they? <laughs> I exactly. I really quickly want to point out. Uh, love, 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 love the fact that born and raised in a state where we had a member of local government get ousted because he posted a picture of himself uh, on his like gray muzzle, like I'm an older furry, like account, like That's with so the funny. governor of connecticut that's so funny it's it was and he was sort of like me and like the governor woo and like he got like and it like went public and he got like that's reamed so for it and it's so, so funny, funny. <laughs> yeah because he had actually kept it under wraps for like a very long time but he like posted a like a professional photo of himself in like just his like business clothes like with the governor and people were like hey man <laughs> what you doing yeah yeah, I saw an article from like 2016 about uh, you know, the the like rich furries who who you know buy all these fursuits and like the person in question was like I have a high up position at Google and I'm going by a pseudonym yeah. and I'm only taking pictures in my fursuit because I, I I don't want you to know who I am but I know people at Discord and at you know uh like li- 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 like every yeah. tech company who who are furries. I yeah, I feel like it's just kind of common. I mean, the we haven't mentioned it yet, but I feel like it has to come up. The whole a furry made the Pfizer vaccine, like the COVID vaccine, is like was mm-hmm. like a big thing on Twitter for a while. It's just like <laughs> as we have said, furries like really do hold up the IT industry and like um those more like tech science medical industries. Um and yeah, don't really want their faces out there because they want to keep that professional like and that's- version, which I think yeah. I just want because I, I I followed uh that that person before um before the pandemic and before this came out and before i think even like they were really like public about what their job was um yeah but they post their face all the time um they actually used to be like super public with who they were it's just like i feel like hilariously that was the biggest political target they put could have put on their back um was not just the the politics of like whatever vaccines but being a furry <laughs> like somehow that yeah. was worse than anything else they could have been like that was like the the craziest um well because i think because like it kind of makes everyone your enemy in some way because it, it on one everybody hand, wants like, to be your enemy literally everybody wants to be my enemy <laughs> <laughs> Because, like, people who are really supportive of, you know, vaccines and, um, science, like, science, um, are gonna be like, oh, now no one's gonna take us seriously because a furry made this 
vaccine and then on the other side of it it's the people who <laughs> don't take science seriously or is being you know, like a fucking furry made this vaccine why would i take this seriously <laughs> and so- something interesting in in terms of more recent developments i think sonic fox um opened doors my best friend uh for 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 like just sort of being unapologetic like yeah i'm a furry and i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna wear this and you know i i think we're in an era now and i think you know like i said that survey was from 2011 i think if you took it today you you would have a much i think the furry community has grown a lot in the pandemic era in the era of like more online identity um Mm. But I also think you would see like fewer people, fewer fursuiters within that, that sample size because like it's, it's become this more accessible thing and this more accepted thing in online spaces. And I think Sonic Fox, you know, is still within like a niche community, but has sort of opened a door that I think with time can lead to more like you know it's not going to jeopardize your career if it comes out that you're a furry yeah because truly they have bridged the gap between gamers and <laughs> like, they, like <laughs> they were the only one who could do it and they did Because that's it. the thing is that i think that a lot of the people have been public because uh, i know chise who is the one that worked on the vaccine and then sonic fox and yeah. whatever these have just been a lot of people who just like have for whatever reason be it just like a lot of resilience or you know in Shisa's case, I know that uh, they got, like, doxxed, like, repeatedly, and they had, like, people, yeah. like, call their work and try to, like, get them fired for being a furry and stuff. Um, but, like, <laughs> they didn't really care. <laughs> their job was yeah. like, okay, what do you want us to do about it? Um, but uh, that they just, like, took repeated hits and, like, online abuse constantly and just kind of went, like, okay... I'm not right. going to go anywhere, though. Um, and that just sort of emboldened people, I feel like, to not be as, like, afraid. Because it's like, well, at the end of the day, nothing happened. Like, you know, for the most part, it just sort of, people just sort of moved on. And we actually, there are, like, people that can be looked to as, like, more public, and I don't want to say public figure, but more like a public figure that can be pointed to and been like, but they exist, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Another example of something like that, which is again in a sort of insular community, but one that, that wouldn't necessarily be accepting of furries is Violent J from Insane Clown Posse, whose daughter is a furry and who's been yeah. very supportive and has his own fursuit and all that. I think like that, that is a really unique example with the juggalos where like they are that same kind of like insular hobbyist convention sort of group, mm-hmm. but likely have very little overlap with the like, old school comic-con furry sort of thing and so i think i i think even if it's just among juggalos uh violent j doing that is 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 a major step towards um solidarity between between yeah. juggalos and furries well i also was gonna say i think that's um that's a real probably a big really big benefit of like furries being so character focused is that like when things like this happen, when it's someone like I, I sorry, I keep forgetting her name. Who did the Pfizer vaccine? Uh, Chise, it was her name, I think. Chise, um, like when something like that comes out, that like um, this you know big person, not she's not like big, but like this influential person is a furry. It's more like inflammatory and more reactionary to post their fursona because that's the weird part so their face doesn't really get attached to it because like you're saying she say like she used to post her face all the time she used to be very public about that i have never seen her face like and i like was like actively like interested in the whole like 
reveal that she was a furry and that she like helped make this vaccine um it's just it's more interesting to show the furry art and to show the first like the fursuit and things like that so it's almost less likely that you're gonna be noticed on the street when you're just in your day clothes because people only know you for the 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 character that you have put on um it's almost like a it's almost like a shield or a barrier and it's probably the reason why uh, probably helpful in the reason why not the only reason that like people like this can kind of deal with all of that hate is that a lot of it is being technically being put towards their character and not towards you know their face and stuff like and that. and i will also just quickly just so that i could get it in there is there is a group that is mm. dedicated to like all these statistics and stuff and they do something like they do multiple things every year and they table at conventions mm. and they're called fur science um, and they've published books, and there are a bunch of, like, Canadian researchers, like, for sociology that are, like, obsessed, <laughs> like, this is their pet topic. Um, so, I know that they've, if you're, like, a person that wants to read, like, hard studies and, like, more updated surveys and stuff, or even, like, be in a survey, you should probably look into that. <laughs> That's really cool. Yeah. And we are going to get into our, our finishing thoughts, but while we're on the subject of public figures, I figure our last sort of anecdote can be the drama around Lil Nas X. I was going to say, are we talking about Lil Nas X now? I'm <laughs> so happy. He's like a Sonic Fox fan. Like He, he is, he is a, a, yeah. a fan and friend of Sonic Fox. Um, yeah. And he ignited controversy within the furry community when he started posting about how he wanted a fursuit and, you know, was, was like interested in it. And then he bought sort of a generic one online and people got really mad at him. And he said, I, I, I didn't know where to get one. And, and sort of like, and sort of was like, okay, well, you're not going to have to worry about me anymore. Bye. So there, I, th- I think there are a lot of sort of nuances to that conversation, but it's an interesting thing where, I mean, Lil Nas X is someone where if he was a full-on furry, that would be a big thing for for yeah. the community, I think. That would be and revolutionary. Yet, and, 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 you know, I, I, I take him that, you know, he, he was ignorant and he didn't really know the all, all this stuff about like the importance of getting uh, fursuit from like a reputable place and and supporting mm-hmm. artists and all that um and 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 of course i also understand the idea of like he's lone as x he could afford to get like a custom fursuit yeah. <laughs> um there, there's sort of two sides to that i do think though that like similar to a lot of underground spaces furry is almost like there there is a big chunk of the fandom that of the furry fandom that doesn't want to be in the limelight and almost like mm-hmm. is trying to push celebrities out of it because they don't want it to be something that is just like generalized and kind of watered down to just be like a either watered down in the sense of like oh haha funny we're all kind of furries now or like watered down in the sense of like you lose that really integral community aspect of mm-hmm. being a furry which is pretty much the only kind of how we've been saying the only like defining aspect of a fandom that doesn't have a source material is like the people that you meet in it um and if it's to become just like a mainstream thing that celebrities are doing that celebrities are kind of profiting off of and like again watering down it it, it takes it takes that away in some aspect maybe not completely but definitely in some part. and i definitely i think that also because i've seen other uh, musicians and other artists and other things of various repute or not um, just use the same kind of like AliExpress bootleg, like you know, cheap yeah. ship fursuit 
uh, as like just a shock value thing or like a look at how like mm. outsider I am kind of thing without any like respect to, uh, again, there's not really a source material, but you know, like the, the group that it's taking from. Um, right. The yeah, culture. the culture. And, you know, I, I, I can see why, especially because in the sense that uh, a lot of those kinds of bootleg fursuits are bootlegs of someone's character. Um, yeah, right. And there's uh, there's obviously the argument that, like, if it's your character and you wear them to conventions, it's a little bit of uh, 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 pseudo-identity theft. <laughs> um, and then yeah. there's just, like, the, the, the general disrespect. I don't know. Like, I, I would 100% believe that Lil Nas X was not sitting at his computer, like, looking for the most reputable first like i don't think that that was like what he was doing with his time like (laughs) i think he like couldn't figure it out because even if you're looking for it it's kind of hard and insular when i was trying to buy my first year when i was trying to find like so it's like hard because especially because like most social media will like shadow ban you if you put the word like commission in like your in any part of your um fucking profile like it's it's hard to find fursuits like fursuit artists and stuff like that it took me like yeah. almost a year just to find someone who i like kind of wanted if it was and if you you like styles that aren't sort of the american default sort of style you're screwed like it's hard yeah. to find and you probably yeah. have to get it imported and like a whole bunch of stuff but even then it's just like at a base level i don't think furries at all want for the most part there's obviously exceptions for the most part, want to be seen. Because I know that yeah, no. on a different scale, MSI, the computer company, uh, recently did a whole, like, marketing campaign, like, online that was all like, oh my god, furries, and furries are like, that. oh my god, no. <laughs> Stop. <laughs> they were like, don't use my character in your promotional material just because you, like, logged into VR chat. I'm going to kill you. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and I think the the difficulty, you know, it. I, I do think it's hard to find a fursuit on purpose in certain ways, um, which you know, I, I, again, is probably the reason that 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 Lil Nas um, didn't Ali-Express get very far in. But uh, I think it's also similar to how furries like kind of don't talk to press at at like conventions yeah. and things. You know, there there's an idea that like, you know they they don't really want to be gawked at uh as much as i think they have a reputation for wanting to be gawked at mm-hmm. um they they kind of you know because 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 they wear these costumes and they have like the guinness world record thing and all that um but they they really don't and um that that is sort of the reason that these misconceptions kind of prevail as much as they're slowly starting to get broken down is because um you know furries are like if we try to challenge it it's only going to make things worse yeah, and you kind of have to be in that group to, you're going back to the like first science thing. You kind of have to be in that group to be able to do any sort of research or kind of any sort of discussion about uh, that group with outsiders. What I'm interested in at this year's Met Gala, which we didn't talk about on the show because we're not uh, interested in uh, celebrating Karl Lagerfeld, but <laughs> Jared Leto had the like realistic fursuit of of Karl Lagerfeld's cat that that he wore and i'd be interested to know where he sourced that from yeah because that was the thing that i saw overwhelmingly was why did it have to be jared leto because like overwhelmingly the reaction was like this is gorgeous could it have been anybody else well that's like kind of 
on maybe the same tangent, not exactly, but that's like I I see a lot of like small businesses who will like hire local fursuit artists to make their like mascot costumes for their business Mm -hmm. like i've seen like random furries who are like here's this ice cream guy that i made for like a local business in my area um yeah it's just like i don't know that just i guess the tie of like not bigger names because these are small businesses but at least like a group that is not furries like recognizing that furries are very talented and furries like have this very very niche skill that like can be you know used to do other things to do fashion for met gala or to do these like costumes to help with like like promotion and things like that i think we can start to wrap things up here uh we've we've had a very excellent conversation and i think we've sort of touched on um there is i think something very human about turning things that aren't human into humans Um, and as we were talking about very early on, this sort of anthropological idea of like when we started to develop advanced hunting systems, it became less about, you know, this thing wants to kill me and more like, I need to know how this thing feels in order to, (laughs) in order to like trap it, um, and, and have a symbiotic relationship with it even. Um, and so, uh, I think... There, there are a lot of like industrial things that like build into the inception of furries. And I think it strikes a lot of people as a non sequitur thing again, because they mostly see, uh, uh, fursuits and these conventions and things. If, it, but if you really look at the history and you look at like the underground comics with an X sort of, sort of scene <laughs> and, you know, everything, you know, I, I, I think a lot of stories about like hobbyists and it's something that you'll see with like, um, unusual kinks and, uh, you know, very specific interests and those sort of things where there'll be like a little news story about, oh, these people are a little peculiar, aren't they? Where'd this come from? <laughs> yeah. like, and then I think always, know. I think always, even with, and, and, and kind of especially with furries, when you really dig into it, there is sort of a rich history there. Yeah. Oh, 100%. Yeah. I was also going to mention, I think the the first thing you said is um, this desire to make the non-human human. And I also mm-hmm. think it works the other way where there's this desire to make the human non-human. Um, mm. And I, I don't think those are different things. I think there is just this desire to close the gap between humans and non-humans mm-hmm. um, is kind of how I see it. Um, and I know how a lot of other people see it because it's like a lot of furries just really like animals um and also a lot of furries are you know these therian um identify as like therian or have this like spiritual aspect to it of like really wanting to do that like to 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 be that thing or to like be represented as that thing um yeah i think those are very like convergent roads and it's a really interesting thing the way that um as we looked at this history the advancements in these the the funny animals and the furries and all that happen at moments where human life and productivity is changing. So, like, the the advanced hunting techniques are the source of, like, anthropomorphized characters and deities and that sort of thing. Mm. And then the industrial revolution is the source of the funny animal and, like, film and animation sort of play into that. And then the internet... Uh, is, is very, very much sees like this, this, this insular community build into what it is today. And I think, I, mm-hmm. I think it's, it, it's, you know, changes in work sort of beget changes in identity. Yeah. It, yeah. And this like desire to just want to like be something else and like kind of almost like go back to these more just like 
not like primal instincts. I don't want to say it that way, but just these like this recognition that like we're all kind of just weird animals. <laughs> yeah, the, like the less we have to rely on survival, the more we're like, you know, we can kind of be anything we want. I, yeah. yeah, that's uh, basically what I had to say was just that it's, you know, it's if there's anything that I can say that there is in common, because as we said before, there's a lot of different approaches and how different people define themselves and define furry and whatever, but like the feeling of an escape, because that's, I feel like yeah. if there was a step in a newer direction, I feel like it would just be the outward sort of acceptance of, you know, people posting about, you know, I don't want to have to go to work, I want to just be a cat. <laughs> you know, which yeah. to some extent existed since Garfield, but it's taken a little bit more earnestly now, perhaps. Um, um, mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. Yeah. I feel like it's just sort of people want to escape somewhere. For some people, that's, you know, mm-hmm. the escapist fantasy of, you know, I wish I could be a Pokemon trainer. For some people, it's, you know, I wish I was in this franchise, or I wish I could be, you know, even just people who are really, really into, like, historical collecting. And I think just for furry, it's just a different mm. sort of escape. <laughs> and I think that's probably why, maybe not the entire reason, but, like, a big reason why, like, furries are becoming more accepted in, like, the modern day is that, like, in an age where your face is just constant, like, you're constantly having to be wary of, like, where your identity is on the internet and, like, how that's being spread and, like, having to, like, make your face into product to be consumed and like your identity and your person into a product to be consumed it's nice to be able to put that responsibility onto a character instead um so you can kind of it it almost it makes you like you can you can be more human because you're you're putting all that stuff onto a a, not a fictional character not yourself yeah and it's sort of parallel to you know um uh seeing more uh prevalence and acceptance for you know uh therians and people who are plural Mm. and you know uh more fragmented ideas of gender and neo pronouns and that sort of thing like the the internet and you uh, and going back to how furries were like were like very early on the internet before before Mm. anyone else like it 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 provides this sort of second life this second space (laughs) Second live, that's yeah. the furry place. <laughs> Yo! And that, if I could, like, have anything to be, like, something closing, I would say that the movement to, you know, quote-unquote, keep furry weird, to keep it non-commercial, to keep it underground, to keep it mm. all of these things, uh, does end up making it a space where people push boundaries and explore a lot mm. in social in art in a lot of different fields just because it's not in the public eye and very often it doesn't want to be in the public eye um and it Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of things integral to the community that allow it to not be yeah like open discussion of sexuality of of you know all these sorts of things It, it it ends up sort of being its own sort of collected space for pushing the boundaries of of weird and i like that i like that it it's that's i think what draws a lot of people to it is that you can be who you are you can do new things you can try new things and that's just a part of it and i think that's you know something that makes it really special 
Yeah, and I think um, that, that that was probably the note to end off on. But I think, uh, <laughs> y- you know, pri- prior to the internet, to get back to that second space idea, um, you know, if you wanted to have sort of... A, a, the idea of a double life is sort of stigmatized, and if you wanted to have it, it had to be in conventions and parties and hotel rooms. Mm. And and the internet sort of created this environment where everyone has a double life, and like there's there's nothing wrong with having a double life. So we I, I think we start to see those things be under more scrutiny and more acceptance. Yeah. Thank you guys so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. This has been an illuminating conversation, and I hope that for those of you who are listening um you've you've it's you know opened your mind a little it's you know given you things to think about uh and and thank you for listening if you like the show you can subscribe or like or rate or whatever on wherever you're listening to it (laughs) um and you can share it with people let people know you like the show that's one of the best things you can do uh next time i don't know what we'll be doing but it'll be uh a returning guest and it'll be a good time bye I disagree, Gary. I disagree, Gary.